We have memories, but we able to suppress those atrocity. We had an arrangement with a coyote, which is a person that brings you here, like a smuggler. And my mom had to pay a lot of money for that. And we know it was risky, of course, because we know we could die on the way here. I don't want to die here. I don't want to be killed because I am hungry. I want food. I came to a country of safety, but I'm, I'm going to lose my life here. My love for this country is unconditional. I could just never take this for granted. Those were some of the voices of immigrants to Western New England. Hi, I'm John Vosey, Executive Director of Programming and Content at New England Public Radio, and this is the Words in Transit podcast. Words in Transit is a project of New England Public Radio and was produced in collaboration with the Copeland Colloquium at Amherst College. Our goal was to bring the national conversation on immigration home to our community here in Western Massachusetts and to shift the discussion from an abstract debate about immigration policies to stories of individuals that have traveled to the United States from around the world. The Words in Transit podcast is being offered in conjunction with the release of the book of the same name, published by the University of Massachusetts Press. In this first podcast, I'll provide an overview of the project and play excerpts from some of the 30 interviews that we collected. In subsequent podcasts, you'll be able to hear the complete stories from our interviewees. Stories about crossing armed borders at night, arriving in a strange new land, and the challenges of embracing a new home. The project began in the fall of 2014 when Alain Stavins, professor of Latin American and Latino culture at Amherst College, approached us with the idea of doing an oral history project around that year's Copeland Colloquium, which was broadly focused on the idea of translation. Words in Transit was originally both a digital and broadcast initiative, and all of the interviews can be found online at the New England Public Radio website, nepr.net. In addition to the audio that we collected, Beth Reynolds shot beautiful photographic portraits of the participants, all of which can be seen at the project's website and in the book. There are a number of themes that run throughout many of the stories, themes that resonate with the history of immigration to this country. The first question we asked everyone was about why they came. A small number came to go to school, often intending to return home, and for a variety of reasons, they ended up staying. The majority came for a better life. For some, it was an economic decision. They were looking to escape poverty. For others, they came to survive. They were escaping violence and the threat of death. Heap Sin was an adolescent when his family escaped from Cambodia. They lived in a squalid Thai refugee camp for 10 years before his family was granted visas to come to the United States. Here's Heap talking about fleeing from the Khmer Rouge. We um, walk at night and uh, we stay in the bush during the day. It took us three nights to arrive at the borders. That's where the, the uh, UN provides foods and shelters. And uh, we lived there for about two or three years. And then uh, there were intensive fighting going on. We packed our uh, stuff at 
six o'clock every day, just ready for if the fighting was done. And one day, my my father decided that uh, we gonna sneak into the refugee camp in Thailand. It's called Kawidang. Another harrowing and heroic story is that of Pascal Akimana, who escaped from the violence in Burundi and led his younger sisters to safety in the Congo. It was at night. The gunshots started. I heard gunshots all over in the village. People were screaming. And suddenly the neighbors were coming to a house, waking people, saying, we are being killed, so and so is being hacked by machete, and then soldiers, military are there. Uh, we started running when I say we, the family. Bullets are being all over, and the gunshots are all, all over. We can see the enemies, and I took direction to Congo with uh, other people who were running for their lives, of the safety. When we reached the border of the Congo, the Congolese military were not so kind uh, to us. They brutalized refugees, they started raping women, and they stole from what the refugees had, what we, we had. I witnessed those things. Life in the refugee camps was often difficult. Buwan Gatam escaped the ethnic cleansing of Nepalese-speaking Hindus in Bhutan. Here he talks about his journey and what life in the camps was like. It is very hard living in the camp. Parts are just like um, when you take camping in this country, what else do you have? You have something to eat and a small camp you, in a plastic hut. So refugee camps are just like that. There is no enough drinking water. There is no food supply, no nutrition. It is a desperate situation to live in a camp because a lot of children die out of malnutrition. Women died with the reproductive health issues. Elderly people didn't have chance to check the me- medical doctors, no medicine. It is a disaster there. Arriving in a new land was often disorienting. Fuad Aboud was an interpreter and English teacher in Iraq. When ISIS began to attack English teachers because they spoke the infidels' language, he left. Here he describes his first day in the U.S. It was just like a shock to come to America from Iraq. But next day, I woke up in the morning and find myself in America in some place in an apartment with some people from Somalia. I jumped from my bed to, to the street. I didn't know where to go. So it was very cold in the morning. It was 6 a.m. And I stayed stayed in the, in, in the street waiting. I don't know what I was waiting for, but I just stayed in the street, just uh, shocked and, I don't know, just watching. You're a stranger in a strange place. You may not speak English well, and you face a variety of other challenges. Vera Pundonmani Cage left Laos as a child. She lived initially in the Boston area, and here she expresses her pride of being here and emotionally recounts what she and others face. So I definitely claim my red, white, and blue stripes, right? I definitely claim that, especially in places where I get denied that you know, or that is rejected, or I'm not seen as American enough, or a real American, or a true American. I'm talking about racism. I'm talking about xenophobia. I'm talking about being scapegoated. I'm talking about being rejected. You know, I remember starting first grade, coming off that yellow school bus for the first day in Shawshin Elementary School. And this kid who's from an older grade comes walking up to me and calls me chink in my ear. 
and I didn't know what that was or what that word was. And he did it again the following day, and I knew to avoid him by then because it didn't make me feel good, and he was doing it in such a sort of um, hostile way, and you can sense that as a young child. So, um, and that was a white boy, you know, and then when I started the end, the half, the rest of the, my fourth grade in Dorchester at the William E. Russell, you know, a black kid did that to me, you know, <laughs> and it was like, you know, stunning, you know, it gives you pause, right? And that was the environment that I grew up in, you know, and sometimes it was about just being safe. Sometimes it was avoiding injury and harm, verbal or physical. Um, and so, when you see your neighbor El Salvadorian families and their little kids and having to go through the public schools and, and having to to also try to adapt and to blend in and to survive and to succeed and and to struggle, it reminds you of your own experience and the hardships your parents faced, you know? when they don't know the language very well, when they don't know how to navigate the system very well, when they don't know how to negotiate very well, when they're constantly sort of taken advantage of. And so to see the economic struggle, to see the struggle in school, it inspires me to sort of use what I know and my own experience for education, for awareness. So that's how I'm I'm dealing with my past. Hind Mari came to the University of Massachusetts on a Fulbright scholarship in 1986. She realized that she couldn't safely return to her native Palestine after the first intifada. Here she talks about not being viewed as a minority, but also not being quite white enough. Even in an educated setting like this one, I have been asked, how come my husband allows me to work? Or... People assumed that by the virtue of being Muslims, he must be physically abusive to me. And as if that's the given, as if that's everyone's experience. Every single time I open my mouth in a store or someone hears an accent, immediately, where are you from? Sometimes they try to ask it in a like, oh, do I hear an accent? And that's a code to me that you don't belong here. Where do you belong? So with the citizenship, with my involvement in town, with my involvement in so many things, I am often reminded that you're an outsider and you're the other. And being Palestinian means I don't belong to any of the most non-ethnic groups in this country. When they talk about diversity, diversity means people of African-American descent, Asian-American, Native American, and Latina, Latino. Nobody would consider Arab American or Palestinian as part of the diversity. I'm often reminded I'm not a person of color enough. According to the State Department, they force me to check the box white, but I'm not, and I'm not treated as white. The value and importance of education is a theme that runs throughout many of the interviews, with both the youngest and oldest of those we talk to. Brian Torres is from El Salvador. As a teenager, he crossed the Mexican border illegally in order to reunite with his family. Here he talks about his struggles and the importance of education. It wasn't until senior year of high school that 
I saw like everybody was so excited about going off to college, going to these like so prestigious universities. And I was like, I wish I could do that. And I wish I could go to college. I started doing research and I was like, actually, if I go to like a community college and there, maybe I can transfer to a four year school that would actually give me financial aid, even if I'm undocumented. And that's where I like took all my money savings. And right after high school, I signed up for class at Holy Community College. Even though I had to pay out-of-state tuition, like I was working two jobs, going to school full-time, and paying for my own education, and that was that was really challenging. Like, sometimes you don't have time to focus on your homework and focus on your work. And also, because I was undocumented, I couldn't drive. So getting from Florence to Holy Community College was always one of the biggest struggles. Like, sometimes I had to walk two miles to get to the bus stop, because that, that was the closest bus stop, then take two buses. That would take two hours. Because I was paying for my own education, that's where I start caring more about getting good grades, trying really hard, working really hard. Gratitude is a consistent theme throughout many of the stories. A number of interviewees were patriotic in their love for this country and grateful for the opportunity that this country has provided. They also commented on what we may take for granted. Woodland Joachim came to the U.S. after living in the camps following the Haitian earthquake in 2010. However, when I came here, I was blessed. I mean, I went from going to school on foot, walking two miles, even more, every day back and forth to go to school, to having, like, free buses to actually take me there, from not having electricity for, like, a week or even, like, a year from, like, having electricity 24-7 from not having clean water to having clean water, actual clean water, stuff that people actually take for granted. And one thing that I actually saw that is that teachers here, they're like your second parent. They care about you, but in Haiti, they don't really. They All they care about is like making the money, and that's it. But here, if they see you crying, they come to you and say, hey, are you okay? Is everything okay? How can I help? Like, I want to help. How can I help? Please, they actually ask you, to have your permission for them to help you. And that was really amazing to see all those people surrounding you and they want to hug you and they want to support you. But then there were students who just don't see that as a blessing. That's why unless you don't have something, you don't really see the importance of it. And I imagined that kids would be more respectful towards the teachers, but I actually saw the the opposite, not for all students, but there were many students who were, who really took that for granted. Veronica Vaida left Ceausescu's Romania and is grateful to be in this country. My love for this country is unconditional because of what it stands for and what I found here. And I could just never take this for granted. Although their new home provided opportunity, many also felt a sense of loss and frustration. George Annan Kingsley escaped political oppression in the Ivory Coast and fled to Ghana. While in hiding there, he began to suffer kidney failure. He was granted medical asylum to come to the United States, where he continues to await a transplant. Prominent in his country, George has been frustrated that his education and experience are not more valued here. Here in America, they will tell you, oh, no, your diploma, we don't recognize your diploma. But in Africa, I was teaching artists. I was making them be artists. 
And some of them are running in the world, doing exhibition and everything. And when you come here and they will tell you, no, that's, we don't know because you didn't go to school in America, it's frustrating. It's frustrating. So sometimes I say, I'm not happy being here because my value is not appreciated. I used to say to people, when you come to America, you can be a great person if you want. And you can be a lower person if you want. It all depends on you. Sometimes you have to forget a little bit of the past. But this past has to be your backbone to support you. Don't forget who you are. What you went through is the experience of your life. Angelica Marino Mohe was 10 when she, her mother, and brother fled El Salvador. She lived here illegally until the passage of DACA in 2012, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. So I was going to school, going home, and I worked. That was when the problem started because I knew I wasn't legal. I knew I couldn't work like everyone else. So I kind of started getting angry because even though I was treated normal as a kid, I wasn't while I was getting into my adult years. I couldn't do what everyone else could do. I couldn't get a driver's license at 16. I couldn't vote. I couldn't get a job, or at least a good job. So that's when my mom you know, explained to us that we were not like everyone else, that we were illegal, and the only way I could work was through getting fake papers. And I got them, and I worked as a dishwasher for a while. I worked about 45 hours a week, and that's when my mom left. I thought I had the support to go to college. At least I wouldn't have to pay for rent, so I knew that I was only working towards going to college, towards paying my tuition. But my mom decided to leave because she just, she couldn't, she couldn't do it anymore, not here. At 18, you know, you're only a kid. I had to find out how to do everything for my own. And once Obama approved the DACA Act, I went back to school. And I was an in-state tuition student. And I I can get a driver's license, um, but I cannot vote. And I cannot get loans. And that's in only 18 states. Not all states have approved it. Other states, you can only work. So Massachusetts was one of the states that did approve it, which I'm thankful for. Um, I don't feel like I'm, I'm an outsider anymore, but I am. And it's, you know, and people just see me as someone else, but they don't know my story. They don't know who I am. They suppose that I am just like them because I carry conversations like them. And I go to school every day and I'm like them but I'm not. So I think I feel I feel American. I feel like I am from here, just without the documents to prove it. You've heard a little bit from 11 of our 30 interviewees. Please join us for more from all of them and from others. In future podcasts, we'll play the complete interview and tell you more about the individuals featured in Words in Transit. Our next episode is entitled Undocumented. We'll hear more from both Angelica Marino-Mohe and Brian Torres, 
two young people that came here from El Salvador as children and the challenges they faced being undocumented. You can see photographs and hear all of the interviews online at nepr.net, where you can also learn about upcoming Words in Transit events. Coming up will be in Amherst, Hartford, and South Hadley. You can also invite us to your community. To see additional photographs and to read transcripts of the interviews, see the Words in Transit book, available from the University of Massachusetts Press at Words in Transit, UMass Press. Proceeds from the sale of the book benefit the Words in Transit Immigrant Scholarship Fund at Holyoke Community College. You can also find information about all of NEPR's podcasts at nepr.net or on iTunes. The managing director of Words in Transit is Temis Silk. The producer is Kathleen O'Keefe. And we had help in this podcast from Sarah Redigieri. I'm John Vosey. Thank you for listening. Words in Transit is a production of New England Public Radio.